Well, good morning, church. Hey, they're pretty good at instruments, aren't they? Um, I don't even know what those things are called. They did a really good job. Uh, I kind of don't want to preach right now. But um, it is an honor to be with you this morning here in this space and in this room. I said to the 9 o'clock crowd, I really, I really mean this. I, I love being in this traditional space. It may have to do with a lot of things. Maybe this is kind of where I first got my you know, legs ever preaching and spending time was in this room. But I can see people in here. I can hear people in here. And so I'm so excited to be here in the traditional room with you guys this morning as we open up God's word and let him teach us something new today. Um, as you may know, we've been in the middle of a sermon series called A Summer with Wesley. And the reason we've been spending time over the past few weeks really revisiting kind of Wesley, his tenets, his, his way of ministry, the birth of the Methodist and Wesleyan movement, is because to really get to know someone, you have to spend extended time with them. You know, I shared in the, in the traditional or contemporary room a couple of weeks ago that I spent um, one of my favorite summers ever is with my grandparents in Minnesota. I got to fly there as a 13-year-old all by myself. And for two weeks, I spent time with them. It was one of the greatest things. I lived a cornfield away from one pair of grandparents. I didn't see the others often. And so to go to spend that much time with them was such a gift to me. And we got to know each other so much better and see where I came from and where I was going. And the same thing is true for our time with Wesley. I hope you've enjoyed a little bit of history as we've gone through some of this. I know maybe some in the room, you have a Wesleyan or a Methodist background. Maybe some don't. So it's helpful for us to go and revisit our roots, to revisit our foundation. As Chad said earlier, today is a historic day in the life of Mount Horeb. After the 9 o'clock service, we had a vote in the auditorium about whether we would join the Global Methodist Church or not. And today, after this service, we will have the same. We will vote together as a body to determine who we are going to be as we go forward. And this vote is really about us as a church realigning with the doctrinal and theological foundations that find its roots in Methodism, find its roots with Wesley. And so, as you know, over the past few weeks, we have looked at a couple different Wesleyan tenets, things that Wesley believes strongly. We talked first about salvation. It's a major pillar of the Wesleyan uh, faith. Uh, discipleship, a couple weeks ago, a major pillar. And missional service last week. And today, we're going to take a look at Wesley's thoughts on what he called holiness or Christian perfection. Now, if you've been at the church for a while, I've been here almost 18 years now. I don't look that old, but it's true. I've been here for a while. And when I first came to Mount Horeb, you may not know this, but I actually played guitar and sang sometimes on the stage in this room and led worship for our students each and every week. And so, though I may be a man of many talents, you may not knew that was a part of my repertoire. When I was in high school, my family had moved to the Dominican Republic when I was a sophomore in high school. And so while we lived there, um, there were not a lot of friends that I had made who spoke English. And I didn't speak great Spanish. And so it was kind of hard to make friends and spend time with people. My cousins were there, but beyond that, there wasn't a lot of options. And so um, I found myself looking for hobbies and things to do for our months that we were there. And my mom and my dad both played guitar. And so I decided to ask my mom if she would start teaching me how to play. So as a sophomore in high school, I started learning some chords here and there, and she was trying to teach me the best she could. I was trying to learn. You know how that goes with kids and parents sometimes. And so I was trying to pick it up on my own too. And I remember the first time I got a couple chords down together that made a song that somewhat sounded like a song that I knew. And I was like hooked. And so every day, like for hours a day, I would play guitar. All these chords, all these things that I was learning, any song I could figure out. And eventually I started learning worship songs too. And so I played like crazy. And I remember as a kid, I played so much and so hard and so long that my fingers began to hurt on the ends. If you've ever been a musician with a string instrument, if you play long enough, what happens? It began to bleed and calluses hopefully begin to develop. And it took a while for that to happen. It was painful. 
but I was dedicated to my craft, man. Like I wanted to be the best guitar player I could possibly be. I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be somebody that didn't just fumble through a song, but could like play a song and people would actually know what the song was. That was my goal. I wanted to be really, really good and I wanted to uh, be somebody who could do it all. Now, to be truthful, I became a bit of a serviceful guitar player. That's been a few years ago. I probably couldn't even play a chord now today. But after all the hard work, it paid off. You know, in our culture today, we have an old adage that we say often when it comes to developing some kind of skill or some kind of practice or some kind of endeavor we might be a part of. We say things like this. We remind ourselves that practice makes what? Perfect. Practice makes perfect. Just keep in working at your craft. Keep working hard. Keep diligent. Because if you do, practice makes perfect. But I, but I would argue this adage is a little bit misleading. Because it would cause us to believe that if we worked really, really hard and we tried more and we tried to learn new things and expanded our knowledge and whatever else, then at some point in time we would reach the end of our talent. But isn't it true that there's always somebody who's more talented than us? There's somebody, always somebody that can do more than we can. There's always something else to learn. There's always a ceiling that's still there. There's always a bit of talent that we can, we can work on and do better at. I would argue that no matter what we put our hands to or our minds to, we could spend a lifetime improving. We could spend a lifetime practicing. But the longer that we go, we may find that perfection is still a goal, but it's never actually achieved. There's always more ahead of us. But it is a goal for which we strive, no matter what it is that we put our minds to. You see, one of the most unique aspects of the Wesleyan Methodist faith is the idea of Christian perfection. You see, Wesley believed that by faith in Christ, surrender to the Spirit of God, and faithful discipline, every believer could achieve true holiness in life and in practice. Now, Wesley believed that we could have perfect love of God and perfect love of neighbor. If we would allow ourselves to be so influenced by God, it was possible. Now, I know that many in the room this morning, and probably even myself, we start making all kinds of cases in our minds why that's a bit of a, a pie-in-the-sky kind of thought, right? Seems too perfect that we could really become perfect or do everything correctly. But for Wesley, he thought this was actually something that was attainable and true for the believer, so while we kind of poo-poo it away, Wesley said, no, no, this is important. The idea of holiness, the idea of Christian perfection, it's not a side conversation, it is the conversation. And Wesley got this idea not out of his own mind, he got it from Scripture. At the very end of Jesus' sermon, his most famous sermon within the Scriptures called the Sermon on the Mount, after he's preached to a crowd of people about the Beatitudes, about being salt and light in the world, about murder, about adultery, about letting your yes be yes and your no be no, about how you treat your enemies, about how you love one another, he concludes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he ends by saying this to the crowd. So be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is perfect. Jesus has just gone through a litany of things that he invites his followers into. And at the very end, he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You see, Jesus sets a standard for what it means to be his followers by pointing to his father in heaven and saying, see how that guy is? Perfection, that is our goal. So good luck. God bless you all. Have a wonderful day. Let's pray. I mean, it's way easier said than done, right? 
And probably for all of us in the room, I mean, our desire would want to be able to do all the things right, to be the best husband and spouse we could be, best employee, friend, so forth. But we know it's not that easy. And yet it's the standard. And yet it's the goal. Jesus said it himself, and Wesley took Jesus at his word. It might be helpful for us to look a little bit into the Greek, a little bit closer to what this word that is used here and what it actually means. So if we look a little closer, this word for perfection is the word teleos. Now this Greek word is translated all over the scriptures as perfect, but it's also translated other ways. It's also translated as complete, or having reached the end, or completion, or I believe best understood as maturity. Maturity. I can imagine the first century listeners, as Jesus gives this sermon and ends in this way, might have said, whoa, Jesus, we just talked about a lot of things, okay? Being salt and light in the world, uh, do not murder, got that, do not commit adultery, uh, also how we should love our enemies, all these things. Jesus, could we get a little bit of a hall pass on some of this stuff? This seems a little bit difficult to be able to take, and and perfection is a really uh, lofty goal. Uh, Maybe there's a hall pass for some of this stuff, but Jesus says, no, this is what I've called you to. In fact, if you look at the word in the Greek, this word perfection, it is the imperative tense. It's a command. Jesus means it. It's not optional for the believer. Holiness, it's expected. Though God has already attained the status of completion, perfection, and holiness, he is, he embodies those things. We ought to, as Christians then, continue to practice our lives in such a way that it would lead to reaching that goal. Wesley took Jesus at his word. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You see, for Wesley, when you read through some of his sermons, you get a bit of a sense of what he means here. Perfection for Wesley did not mean flawlessness, but rather he saw it as a continuing on to maturity. It's not that you will never make another mistake again, but it's that your heart is so determined to live a holy life. Your desire is so strong to live the Christian perfected life that you strive for it each and every day and move on toward holiness. Wesley wrote about this in a lot of his sermons and some of the phrases that he uses help us understand his mentality here. He said this in describing holiness. He said it's when we have habitually been filled with love of God and love of neighbor. Habitually, over and over and over again, we find ourselves filled with love of God and love for those around us. Wesley also said, here's what holiness and Christian perfection looks like. It's having the mind of Christ and walking as he walked. As Philippians 2 said, having the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who did not consider himself God, but he laid it down humbly having the same mindset of Christ and walking as he walked. In my generation, there was something that we used to wear when I was a kid, and I'm seeing it pop back up now again, a little bracelet that said what? WWJD. What would Jesus do? Even as a kid, when I wore this bracelet, I would look at it and think to myself, what would Jesus do in this instance? In this situation, how would he respond? The expectation is that I would respond the same. This is what Wesley believed in his heart was possible for the believer. We talked a few weeks ago, I think it was Pastor Bryce that was in here. He was talking about the earliest indications that Wesley valued this perfection so highly and seriously in terms of discipleship. 
During Wesley's time at Oxford, when he was first starting school, he and some of his friends began a movement of sorts called the Holy Club. You might remember this. And in these holy clubs, these people would gather together. You would have John Wesley, his brother Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and other individuals who would come together. And they would gather for prayer and Bible study and spiritual discipline. And one of the keys to a holy life, according to Wesley and according to the holy club, was a life of Christian perfection is someone who has a sober self-assessment. Someone who has a sober self-assessment who sees themselves as they actually are. Now this morning, there may be some in the room today, and I know for myself, I often run into this, where I perhaps think a certain thing about myself, but if I look closer or if I were to ask a close friend, let's say my wife, they might help me to see that's not indeed how it is. A sober self-assessment is important. We may see ourselves as a certain spouse. We may see ourselves as a certain kind of friend or a certain level of generosity or a certain level of trustworthiness. But if we were to ask those around us, if we were to take an honest look at ourselves, we might find that is indeed not how we are. There's a ceiling here that can be raised. There's a holiness that we can push toward. There's a Christian perfection that we are allowed to by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life in this particular area. And so in these holy clubs, what Wesley would do with these other individuals, they came up with 22 questions that they would ask each other in these meetings. And Wesley and others, they would write down their answers to these questions in their journals so they could track their spiritual growth. Am I improving? Am I moving on toward holiness? And this was the way to do this. Good questions help us have a sober self-assessment. There were 22. I won't read them all to you. But if you read a few of them, you'll find these questions that were written 200 years ago are questions that we need to ask ourselves today. Here are some of them. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? I'll just leave that one with you right there. Just ask that every day. And if you can answer that honestly, that's how you grow. How about this one? Am I honest in all my acts and words or do I exaggerate? Can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress, friends, work, or habits? I'm not a slave to dress. You can probably tell that already. Did the Bible live in me today? Am I enjoying prayer? When did I last speak to someone else about my faith? What a great question. In a church the size of Mount Horeb, what if each and every one of us each day made a point to share our faith with one other person? What would happen? It's a great question. How about this one? Do I pray about the money that I spend? Do I go to bed on time and get up on time? Help me, Jesus, right? (laughs) There's some growth that can happen here, some perfection that can happen here. Do I insist upon doing something which my conscience is uneasy? When I get uneasy about something, do I push the conscience away and do I do it anyway? Do I insist upon, uh, is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold a resentment toward, or disregard? Do I grumble or complain constantly? How about this one? Is Christ real in me? These are just a few questions of the 22 that the Holy Club would ask one another, and here's why. Because Wesley believed that holiness was possible. The spiritual perfection, Christian perfection was the goal that Christ calls us to and that is available to us. And one of the best ways to do this is through sober self-assessment. So as you heard earlier, I've been at the church for quite a while. 
And about 10 or 11 years ago, I was doing student ministry here at the church and I was really troubled in my spirit because I felt like there were students in our youth program who weren't taking holiness seriously. They didn't see Christian perfection as something to really strive for. They were just kind of floating throughout life and we could probably all raise our hands to this too. We do as, as well at times. But I felt compelled to do something about it. And so we decided we were going to create this little group of guys that would come together. I was particularly concerned about high school boys and it was going to be called the Brotherhood. And so we didn't have a whole lot of plan. We just said, what if we got high school boys together and we had these 12 questions and we asked each other these questions and just tried to be honest about them. So we advertised it. I had a little blue house over on Robert Street that I lived in. And we advertised to the high school boys and said, okay, guys, um, if you want to come, we're going to gather together and we're just going to ask 12 questions and then we're going to pray. It's not going to be fun. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. It's not going to be fun. But if you want to come and you want to grow, like, we'd invite you to come to this thing. We had 35 high school boys come to the first time together. And they crowded in my living room. We all sat in a circle. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this many guys in this room. But what we did is for over two hours, we went through every question. And it was just like this. Okay, question one. Here it is. How about you? 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 And we said, put your thumb up if you're good. Put your thumb down if you need some help. And then share for like 30 seconds how we can help you. You see, the goal was not a gotcha session. We were not looking for someone who was struggling in something so we could point them out and criticize them. But instead, someone who said, listen, I'm really struggling with this. Maybe weeping with tears. We would gather around them and said, how can we help? Maybe we'll ask next week if you went and apologized to your mom about that thing. Maybe because pornography is an addiction for you and an issue right now, we're going to ask you, we're going to text you about it. We want to help you. I mean, some of these questions were really intense. Things like, have you exposed yourself to any explicit material this week? Questions like, is there anyone that you need to go and apologize to or seek forgiveness from? Have you read the Bible every day this week? I mean, these were tough questions. And so every week when we got together, we would ask these things of one another and they would be weeping. We would cry with one another, pray with one another, really try to help one another. We didn't even know it, but we had stumbled upon Wesley's secret of the Holy Club. Sober self-assessment. I see some parents in the room right now who had kids who came to that group. There's some adults that I've seen this morning who are part of that original group helping make this happen for these boys. It was powerful. The best thing I've ever done in student ministry, and I didn't even mean to. We had no idea what would happen, but there's something powerful that takes place when we're willing to ask ourselves the tough questions and recognize where there's a ceiling to grow and where we are falling below the standard that Christ has for us that we might inch toward that standard once again because holiness and perfection is possible for us. I long for a church, myself included, who has a deep desire to live with Christian perfection in all areas of our life. I long for a church and pray for a people who will push one another toward holiness. Listen to me this morning. Our church, this church has the opportunity because our world needs people who want to be holy. Who want to live with perfection. Christian maturity is available to us. Now at the risk of be calling holier than thou, and please hear me, it happens all the time. There have been times in my life where I've decided I would not do something. I would not watch something. I would not be a part of something. And you get this pushback sometimes like, hey, listen, you're supposed to be holier than thou. You think you're better than everybody else. That's not true. And in fact, please hear me, this is not a competition. I'm not deciding how to live my life so I can push someone else down and lift myself up. 
And in fact, if someone sees that in my life enough that they would want to push back on it or make fun of me, my response has become this, thank you so much for noticing. I've worked hard for that. I've allowed God to do that. And so it may be a little awkward because you feel like I'm trying to one-up you on something. That's just not the case. What if we were not afraid at all to live holy? To live with maturity? What if we strived for it? What if it was the badge of honor? Not that we came to church every Sunday. Not that we read our Bible every day. But that we live with Christian maturity within our life. This is what Wesley believes. The tenet of our faith. The foundation. The very roots of this church. And as we go forward, that needs to be the way that we live. You want to see the world change? Have 5,000 people who call themselves members of Mount Horror begin to live with Christian maturity, with a perfection about their life, with a holiness and a humbleness to walk each and every day. This is not a side conversation. It's not, a, it's not an aside kind of thing to talk about living and, and finding sin and eradicating it. It is the conversation. This is indeed why Christ came and died for us. John Wesley talks about it often in one of his sermons called A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. How about that one for an enticing sermon title? A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. He says, always remember the essence of Christian holiness is simplicity and purity. One design, one desire, entire devotion to God. I'm afraid that sometimes in our Christian culture we complicate Christianity. We make it about all kinds of other things. And Wesley would say, no, there's a simplicity and a purity here. All that we care about is entire devotion to God. Let's all the politics, let us let it fall to the ground, please. All the other things that we focus our attention to, to, let it fall to the ground, please. And we turn our attention solely toward God. We live in holiness and perfection toward him. An audience of one. That is what Wesley longed for. In its entire devotion, not partial, not mostly, not some, entire devotion. That means that every part of our lives, our family, our work, our friendships, our sexuality, our recreation, our, our language, our resources, all of it is given to God and surrendered to Jesus. Entire devotion. And here's the thing. Entire devotion does not happen by accident. You don't stumble into holiness. You don't stumble into Christian perfection. There was a reason there was a holy club. There's a reason that we were called Methodists so long ago. There's a method to living into this life that God has called us to. Our faith must be active endeavor. We cannot fall asleep at the wheel of holiness. We will never arrive. We will never avoid the allure of pornography. The thrill of gossip, the cesspool of anger or bitterness, the addiction to a substance. We will never overcome these things without endeavor that is active and alive each and every day. We have to fight the tide by the Spirit of God. My boys, their favorite place to go in the summertime is the beach. My mother-in-law has a beach house in Surfside. Not far from the beach, we have a golf cart we can drive down to the beach. And we love, Jen and I, to take the boys and, and, and our daughter to the beach and sit down. And when Jen and I go, we bring chairs because the intention we have is sitting and not moving for hours. So we put the chairs down, the boys go out into the ocean, the surf, and they're playing and everything. But you, if you're a parent and you've ever taken kids to the beach, you know what happens. They play for a while, but slowly but surely what begins to happen? They begin to kind of like 
be, be drugged down the beach a little ways until they get into someone else's group and then beyond that or whatever. And I just watch it happen. I'm like, maybe we should just let this happen. Like maybe they should just, just let them go. It feels good. But Jenna will elbow me and be like, go get them. I'm like, yes, ma'am. So you get up out of the chair and you walk down so they can hear you. You're like, kids, please come back. And then, then they, they make their way back up to the beach in front of you again. You sit down. But you know in 15 minutes you're doing the same thing over and over again, right? It's like, what's the point? But, but our life, the world that we swim in and we live in, there is an undertow just like the beach. And sometimes it's slow. And I would argue sometimes if you look around, it is quick. And that undertow will grab us every time. And it will pull us away from the things of God. Now, I, I know that even to say these things out of my mouth, we live in a culture today that, that is such a, um, a childish thing, maybe even such a foolish thing to say, but I mean it. Like, I, I'm done playing games in the culture that we're in. This is not something to play with. Sin is real, it's destructive, and it's destroying us. It's destroying our families, it's destroying our communities and our churches. So holiness is not something that we just play with. Holiness is something that we strive for. And in a world where the tide is so strong and we are so easily pulled away, we have to look up often at the beach to recognize, have we floated away from Christ? Are we somewhere down the beach and we have no idea where we are anymore? Do we see him calling back out to us? Come back, return. Return to this this goal of perfection and holiness that, that is available to you. This is what our church must return to. In fact, Paul gives us a bit of a blueprint for this as he writes his letter to those that were living in Rome. He says the early church was blossoming in Rome. It was doing so in one of the most difficult locations in the world to grow. Rome at this time, to become someone who was spiritually mature, someone who had Christian perfection, holiness, this was the place where it was most difficult. It was the center of secular culture. There was an endless number of false gods to pull you away. Sexual perversion ran rampant. Persecution was the norm and everything was done in excess. So when Paul writes to them, he's writing with this background. Not much different from the world we live in. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. What's the word? Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and what? Perfect will. See, these two words show up in this Romans chapter 12 passage. Both times, Paul says this, when we offer our bodies to the Lord out of view of his mercy, it's holy and it's pleasing to him. When we no longer conform to the patterns of this world, we discover the good and perfect will of God. Those are the results of holiness. And notice Paul's urgency at the very beginning. It's right in line with Jesus' imperative in Matthew 5 when he says, Be holy, just as your Father is holy. Paul says, I urge you. I urge you. Quit looking to the world for the standard. Quit looking to the world for the bar. But instead, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What Paul's describing here is something in the Christian church we call repentance. Repentance simply means this. If I'm traveling this direction, living my life in this way, to repent means to turn and go the opposite direction. 
It comes from the Greek word, two words, metanoio. It means to have a change of mind after being with. We've encountered the mercy of God, the love of Christ. It changes the way that we think. We no longer see the world we once, the way we once did. We change our minds to agree with God. We agree with him that sin will destroy us if we allow it to dwell within our life. Therefore, we seek it out every way we can. The church, our church today, needs an intense aversion to sin. I'm afraid that many of us in the room this morning, and myself included sometimes, we have settled for the level of holiness and Christian perfection that we have already attained. Our mantra is simply this, good enough. We're Christian. We've walked with Jesus for 20 years. We've done some improvements here and there. We've tried to do the right kinds of things. Good enough. And if anyone points anything out, or if we sense it on a Sunday morning, or we hear a song and it prods our hearts, we just simply say, no, 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 I'm good. I've done a lot of work. I'm not interested anymore. That is not the kind of mentality that Paul, Wesley, and Jesus Christ calls us to. We strive on toward perfection. We strive on toward holiness. It's a dangerous mentality because left unattended with sin in our life, we only regress. Sin is a sickness with one goal, and it's destruction. When I met my wife, she was working at McAllister's Deli while she was in school here in Lexington. And so I walked in one day, and uh, my wife is stunning. Uh, so I walked in, and I was like, wow. And I didn't really know how to start a conversation other than I, I need a spud and a sweet tea. So I figured I needed to try something else. For whatever reason, I had a spider bite on my wrist right here that had gotten a little gnarly. And so I walked up, and I was like, hey, look at my spider bite. <laughs> and she was like, wow. Like, I've survived. <laughs> I thought it was impressive, but I don't think it really was. And uh, that was our first conversation ever. But look what happened. So um, <laughs> within two days of that time, I'd, I'd probably had this bite a couple days before I met her. I, we had this conversation. Within two days, we had a big youth event. at a, we, we rented out a, a, the theater over in Irmo for the Narnia, the very first Narnia movie, the, the screening. And um, it was packed full of students and stuff. And I was feeling terrible. Like, I was, I was sweaty, I was fevery and stuff, and this, my wrist was not doing well. And um, if y'all remember David Olshine, his daughter Rachel actually drove me to the urgent care because I had to get it lanced and taken care of because they said, listen, if you would have gone one more day, you would have been septic. Like, this could have killed you. I'm like, really? I used it as a pickup line like two days ago. I didn't realize it was that big of a deal. <laughs> and here's the thing. Something even that small, left unattended, will fester and it will grow. And the same thing is true in our life. The smallest thing that we leave unattended, it will fester and it will grow. And let me remind you, the only goal of sin, to kill, steal, destroy. So Wesley's not just calling us to holiness, he has nothing else to do. Jesus isn't just saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect because he thinks it'd be a fun thing to challenge us to. So we get really, really frustrated. They're saying this because they know that's where true freedom is found. When sin has been eradicated and removed from our lives. The, the late preacher, John Owen, said it this way. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Seek it out by the Spirit of God. Hunt it out and kill it. Get it out. Pull it up by the roots. 
There's a little creature that I learned about this week in, in the northern parts of Europe. And I'll show you a picture of this little thing. It's called an ermine. See, look at that cute little dude. It's like a Pokemon or something. So this, um, this ermine, they have brown fur during the year, but in the winter months when the snow's on the ground, they have this bright, white, really pure fur. And so it's helpful to them because if they were to be picked up by a larger predator, a wolf or something like that, they could be killed and eaten, like the size of a weasel. And so they are super intense about keeping their, their white fur pure. They get dust or dirt on it. They will clean it off themselves to make sure they're not detectable within the snow. So their fur is very valuable and they're hunted to be able to you know, become a, a boot or a hat or something like that. And so what happens, hunters will go look for them. And the way that hunters will catch them in the mountains is they will go and find their den. And they will take dirt and grime and smear it all over the inside of their den. They release the dogs to chase the ermine. And when the ermine goes back to their den to escape, they see, if I go in there, I will cover myself with filth. Soot will be all over me. Dirt will be everywhere. And they won't do it. They'll give themselves up. You see, the ermine will actually lose its life to make sure that they are untainted and they are pure. You see, some of us, we don't have that mentality. We'll do anything. We don't even ask a second question. But what would happen if we were to recognize that becoming a Christian actually requires that we give up our life? Do you know this? Becoming a Christian isn't just a prayer and then you just skate on till the very end. Becoming a Christian, you die to your old self. You die to your selfishness. You crucify it with Christ. You actually do that exact thing so that you have the opportunity to live a life that is pure, untainted, perfect to what Jesus Christ has called us to. Oddly enough, Christian maturity looks just like this. So in the very beginning, I said that we have this adage, you know, practice makes perfect. And I would argue this may be true in some areas in our life. We can get really, really good with a lot of things. But I would just say that this is not true when it comes to a relationship with Jesus. In fact, it couldn't be further from the truth. There are many of us in the room this morning who have become so frustrated over a pursuit of holiness and a pursuit of perfection because we just simply believe we can try harder and we can do it. We frustrate ourselves over and over by shaming ourselves over all the wrong things that we've done, thinking that somehow it'll make things right. The Bible reveals to us that the only way to this Christian perfection that Paul, that Jesus, and that Wesley talked about is through Jesus Christ. Here's the way it's said in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14. The author here is writing about the Old Testament sacrificial system and the way Jesus has turned it on its head. Here's what it says. Day after day, describing the system, priests stand and perform his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But... When the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to, uh, to, uh, to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You see, Old Testament sacrificial system, priests, over and over again, every year would have to make sacrifices for sins to cover them for that year. And the next year, do it again and again and again. And Hebrews says in the end, it actually did nothing. But there's one sacrifice, once and for all, Jesus Christ himself, who himself was pure and perfect, 
who gave his life on a cross, and in doing so, this one sacrifice, it is the very thing that is now making us holy. You see, we don't practice to become perfect. Jesus Christ offers us his perfection, and it's to be practiced. You can never be good enough to earn it. You understand me? Stop trying. Stop trying so hard to be perfect. Instead, allow the Spirit of God to indwell you. For Jesus Christ to offer you his perfection that he has earned on the cross. And out of that, begin to practice it. Each and every day. It's yours. It's the expectation. It's the bar. And luckily, Jesus Christ, not luckily, praise God. Jesus did it for us. That is our way of salvation. That is our way to holiness, only through the blood of Christ. And so this morning, I want to invite you as we pray together. Maybe today you are so tired of trying to do the right things, trying to be the best husband, trying to give up this addiction, trying to do the... Instead, maybe today your move is to simply surrender to God. God, I receive your perfection for my life. Help me to live it each and every day. And God, as I live it, may I get better and better and better and better at it. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your grace and for your mercy, for your love for each and every one of us. I ask that today, God, this morning, that your spirit would speak to our hearts and show us that we can never possibly achieve the perfection that's required to be in right relationship with you and to spend eternity with you. But God, help us to see that Jesus Christ gave his life to offer it to us. Help us to take that perfection and practice it over and over and over again. That we might live into this holiness, this Christian perfection, this maturity that's available to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. And it's in your name we pray. And together everyone said.